grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you today. Is it the first day of spring? Yeah, that must be why I'm feeling so joyful. So joyful today. I, I tell you what, I have, I have preached this message to myself like three times, four times already today. And I am excited about what it is that we're going to do together. Hey, the, before I get into this, so I want you to notice this uh, invitation card, this invite card that was in your handout. I just want to take a moment, be super, super clear. This is not for you, okay? This is not for you. It's not for you to just to tear off a little, one little bit and put it in your bathroom, on the bathroom mirror, and the other little bit to put on your dashboard, and the big piece to put on your refrigerator, just so you don't forget that next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, that we are celebrating Easter at Overlay. And I don't want you to forget, so please don't get me wrong, but this is not for you. This is for you to actually take and to give to a friend and invite them to come with you. Uh, bring a friend along, a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe a classmate, somebody that, that you care about, that, that you would say, hey, I know that Easter is one of those seasons when people are just a little bit more receptive to checking out what this whole church thing is all about. What, what's the big deal about Jesus? Or why does everybody, uh, you know, get, get all, it does that have anything to do with Easter bunnies and eggs and, and uh, you can invite somebody to come with you. And what we're talking about next week, I'm so excited, is we're, we're kind of wrapping this whole Only Jesus series and we're talking about the gift that only Jesus gives. So that is the message next week. I'm very, very excited about what God's going to do. Today, if you want to grab your notes out of your handout, you'll see that, that we are continuing a series. This is week three. We're talking about the, the, the episode, the, the passage in Scripture where even the rocks cry, King Jesus. So that's, that's what we're going to unpack right now in this only Jesus Reality, again, the recognition, there's a lot of confusion about the person of Jesus, what he taught and how he lived and what he claimed about himself, the role that he filled. So we're talking about how he fills a role that only Jesus can fill. So let's jump in. We're actually going to look at a passage of scripture that is, it is known, sort of if you know church history, you know today is often referred to as Palm Sunday. So we're looking at that passage of scripture. We'll be looking at it from the Gospel of Matthew first, and then we'll switch over just at the end. There's an addendum uh, that is mentioned by the Gospel writer Luke. We're gonna kinda look at that as well. We'll talk about some of the implications. But let's jump right in. Matthew 21, if you have your Bibles, if you have your notes, it'll be on the screen. We'll start in verse one. It says this. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Now I read that, and I think to myself, this is the world's first Jedi mind trick right here. <laughs> You're going to go over there, you're just going to grab a donkey and it's cold, and you're going to start leading it away, and somebody might say, hey, that's my donkey, that's my colt, where are you going with it? And you just say, the Lord needs these, and they'll let you take them. So that's actually what happens. But notice, keep reading, notice what this is all about in, in verse 4. This took place to fulfill the prophecy. Circle that phrase, to fulfill the prophecy last week. 
Overlake, if you, if you missed last week, you've got to go back online and catch up because last week we talked about how many core prophecies are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We only looked at like 25 of them, but, but there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah that Jesus fulfills. And only Jesus fulfills these prophecies. So please, if, if you, somehow you missed it, uh, go back, ch- check it out, because it is so compelling. And again, a, a part of this overall reality that only Jesus fills the role that Jesus fills. That he, that there are many good teachers, there are many moral leaders, there are many revolutionaries, but only Jesus fulfills this unique role. So that's all a part of the prophecy fulfillment. But let's keep going. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Okay, so we'll keep going. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him, threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so let, let's unpack this. And, and first what I want to ask is I want you to imagine the scene. You need to allow your mental imagery to, to fill it in, to go ahead and paint it in for you. Because this is one of those moments, this is one of those key, profound kind of a moments where Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And, and I have been there and I have seen the pathway that he would have come from, from the Mount of Olives down through the valley and then up into the, the, the city of Jerusalem. And, and you could just imagine this scene thronged with people. And, and there are people crowded around him and they're throwing down their coats and they're cutting off palm branches and throwing them in front of the donkey and they're all singing and they're shouting and notice what it is that's going on in the minds of these people. Friends, this is not random. This is not like a, like a good basketball team. You know, the, the Seahawks win the, the Super Bowl and there's a parade. It's not like that. It's, it's, it's more powerful. There's more expectation going on because look what's happening. This is... This is a, a coronation procession. This is a ceremony where they are ushering in the king. What does the prophecy say? Look, your king is coming to you. He's humble, he's riding on a donkey, on a donkey's colt. This is your king. And the things that they're saying all affirm, the crowd affirms that Jesus is the king. They want him to come in. And so they're saying, blessed is he who comes. This is the son of David. Last week we talked that the, the line of David was going to birth the Messiah. They're saying this is the one who is the anointed one of God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the, the anointed of the Lord. And, and so they're saying, come in and you be the king. You come in and take political power. You sweep in. You ascend the throne here. Sweep the Romans out of power. We're tired of taxation without representation. We're tired of the, the brutal treatment of the Roman guards. You come in. You restore well, what needs to be restored. And, and, and so this is a kingship uh, reference here. And what I do want you to know 
is that specifically their expectations are that Jesus will come in and he will restore the kingship of David. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this, but the kingship of David represented some core concepts to the Israelites. It represented godly leadership. It represented protection, especially for the downtrodden and the marginalized. It represented economic vitality. It represented provision for all, nationalism and cultural pride. And the people's hearts were yearning to have Israel restored to a glory that it hadn't seen in a thousand years. So it had been a long dry spell. And we don't have any real analogies of what a king might represent the way that they understood what a king would represent because and I, I just want to say frankly, thank goodness that, that we have understood that we're a fallen people in a fallen world and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that's a good thing that we have, that we have discovered. But what they would have said is, no, no, no. When the king comes, the rightful king ascends the throne, this is what's going to happen. The expectation was all will be right when the king is on the throne. Injustice will be halted. Justice will flow. The oppressed will be liberated. Those excluded will be included. All harms will be healed. All wrongs righted. And friends, what human being can live up to these expectations? No human being. Only Jesus. Right? Only Jesus. And, and, and so what I want you to see is that clearly what's happening in the hearts and minds of the Israel crowd as they're gathered around is there's this intense expectation. There, there's this uh, acknowledgement that Jesus is not coming in as a returning war hero. He's not coming in as a super popular Justin Bieber type guy. Jesus is coming in as king. This is a kingly procession. And, and, and they recognize what they're saying. Son of David. This has messianic overtones that they're, that they're cheering. And they're not the only ones who, who are thinking this. The Pharisees are also thinking this. So we're going to flip over now to how the, the passage ends in the book of Luke. And this is what happens in Luke 19. It says, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd. By the way, I get a feeling that every time I read something about the Pharisees from the scripture, we should all go, boo, his. You know, because they're always in the Bible. They're always the bad guys. They're always the, you know, like, uh, it's, it, they're always trying to, to quench the fire here. So, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Now, notice that the Pharisees call Jesus a teacher. They say, teacher. They, they acknowledge that he's a teacher. In the passage before, in Matthew, when the crowds ask, who is this? The crowds answer, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. So understand, commonly known of Jesus, that yes, he's a prophet. Yes, he's a teacher. And, and again, we recognize that there are many prophets. There are many teachers. So that's fine. Again, the argument is that, but Jesus fulfills a role only Jesus can feel, uh, fulfill. And, they, and the Pharisees are missing this. Now, there are probably many times in the scripture where Jesus is enjoying himself, but, it, but we would have to sort of guess about those times. But in this passage, I think it's really safe to argue, this is a passage that Jesus seems to clearly be enjoying himself. 
that, that Jesus, you can just imagine that as he's, as he's riding in and they're singing and there are they're, they're psalms that are being sung and they're chanting and, and they're, you know, they're, everyone's cheering his name, that, that finally you could imagine, he's, he's got a smile, he's enjoying this. Because you remember that all throughout the gospel accounts, Anytime somebody calls him the son of God, anytime somebody really understands who he is, he always tells them, shh, don't tell anyone. He always says, yeah, you're right, let's keep it quiet. Like even the demons, like he's casting demons out, and they're saying, what are you interfering with us, son of the most high God? And he's like, be quiet. By the way, demons always knew exactly who Jesus was. So just because you might know who Jesus is, like on an intellectual level, it, all that does is put you in the company of the demonic horde. That's, that's not that great, right? So it, it's about more than that. It's about submitting our lives and our hearts and, and, and honoring him and giving him the authority of our lives. So there's more going on. But in this passage, it's easy to see that Jesus is just enjoying himself. He's told people forever, don't tell anyone, keep it quiet, let's not talk about that. But now, finally, they're calling him king, and they're, they're ushering him in as king. And so you could just tell, he's like, oh, this is good, this is a moment. And the Pharisees say, teacher, tell them to be quiet. They're going to get us in trouble with the Romans. They, they, it's easy to see this is a, a coronation. They're going to get us in trouble with the authority. And then they're saying, teacher, you got to tell them to hush because they're actually calling you Messiah. They're saying you're the anointed one of God. And that's like, that'll be blasphemy. Don't do it. You know, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, if they don't sing praise, the rocks will cry out in cheers. Now, the scripture, by the way, is filled. If you, if you want to go to, say, Psalm 19. And talk, it talks about how all of the heavens, the, the entire universe is in continual praise unhindered for the Lord. Or you talk about Isaiah 6, which talks about the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Or you go to Philippians chapter 2, which says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And all of creation join in with the recognition that Jesus is Lord. So in light of these sweeping realities, Jesus just saying that a few rocks are going to cry out if they be quiet, that's really kind of tame. Does that make sense? It's really sort of diminutive, but, but Jesus knows the reality that if these don't cry out in praise, that the rocks themselves will cheer. It reminds me, this happened several years ago in our home, that uh, my wife Jody and I, we were actually getting our kids ready for school. All three kids were there in the kitchen, it was you know, kind of early morning, and, and so we're bustling around, making breakfast, making the kids lunches, and it just so happened that on this morning, my wife and I were, were like humming and singing a praise song. And it's, it's really quite rare. Uh, I, I say not rare that we make breakfast, not rare that we make lunches. I think we'll be doing that until my kids are 40, 50 years old probably. Uh, just the way it seems to be going. But uh, the idea that we would just kind of be in the kitchen singing praise songs. Like uh, we're not the Von Trapp family. Like that's, that does not happen regularly. And in fact, if you want to have a clearer picture, it's, it's more like a Disney film produced by Tim Burton, right? It's just, it's just kind of creepy and a little off. And that, that's sort of the picture you have to imagine. But we're singing. And the song that we're singing is actually by Tim Hughes. It's a praise song. And it's called Almighty God. And, and the lyric goes, Almighty God, 
In every way, you are high and above understanding. If we did not praise, the rocks would cry out, glorious God. And, and so we're singing that song. And as we're singing that lyric, if we did not praise, the rocks would cry out. My son Caleb interrupts us and says, is that true? He's in elementary school. Is that true? And, and it, it kind of takes me off guard. I mean, because obviously he interrupted a magnificent, you know, solo. But... I said, oh, yeah, buddy, it's true. And I, I kind of just referenced this passage that we just read. Jesus talked about this. He's telling the Pharisees, look, if we don't praise, the rocks themselves will cry out. And he says, stop singing. And he goes to the window. <laughs> and he's listening out the window. Like, like just the faith of a child, right? He's thinking, oh, man, you need to stop because I want to hear this, you know. <laughs> and he's probably thinking, they will sing a lot better than you do, you know. But that, it's just such a, a cool image that Jesus gives us that, that we get an opportunity to join in with all of creation in lifting him high. Now, now here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the problem with the expectations of the crowd. And I'm sure you've heard this, you've thought of this before. The problems with the expectation of the crowd, because there were some problems with the crowd's expectations, and that's why just a few days after this Palm Sunday, the same crowd is chanting, crucify him. So, so yes, there are some problems with the expectation of the crowd. And here they are. The crowd thought that he had to go through the town of Jerusalem to claim his throne. Jesus, however, knew he had to go through crucifixion and resurrection to claim his throne. The crowd thought that he was going to claim his kingship and deliver all of Israel from the Roman Empire. He knew he was going to claim his kingship and deliver all nations and all tribes and all tongues from the kingdom of darkness forever and ever. And this is a good moment to just take a pause, a teaching moment, to recognize that the, the crowd's plans and Jesus' plans were far different. And it's a good moment to recognize that God's plans and my plans are often very different. My plans and God's plans are often different. But I want to tell you that God's plans are always better. And so you, you need to kind of write that down. You need to mull over this, that the plan that Jesus had was infinitely better than the plan that the crowd had. The only reason why the world knows any of the king's of the Roman Empire from that era is how they are footnotes in the history of Jesus Christ. The, the human kingship has such a problem. It's, it's, it's so trivial, it's, it's so finite. And what Jesus had in mind, what God's plan was, was infinitely better than what the crowd's expectation was. And I'm gonna say that's true for you and me. That God's plan is gonna be different than your plan, but it's gonna be better. Because God's plan is going to stretch you, and it's going to grow you, and it's going to guide you, and it's going to develop you, and it's going to carry you to the moment when finally you arrive at your destination worthy of what he has called you to. God's plan is always going to be different, but it's always going to be better. And so what the crowd was saying is, here comes the king. And they were right. It was true, but... They didn't know what they were actually saying. You see, yes, Jesus is king, but he is king not simply because he lived a good life. 
And he is king not simply because he taught great things. And he is king not simply because he was a great man who died a martyr's death. Yes, he did these things. But that's not what makes him king. That's not what fulfills prophecies. That's not what makes the songs that those crowded around him singing true. What makes all of this true, what makes Jesus king is the resurrection. And only Jesus does this. Only Jesus rose from the grave. You see, the resurrection is so central to our faith in Jesus Christ. It's so central to those who are following Jesus. If you strip away all of opinion and all of commentary, you strip away all the stuff that sits in an open hand, things that we can debate and discuss, and you drill right down to the bedrock of what it means to be a Christ follower. This is the stuff you hit. This is the foundation. It's the crux of the whole thing, resurrection. And if you're here and you've got some skepticism, I just want to say, like, I affirm you. I, I recognize, I'm a, my heart's just a tiny bit skeptical myself. And it's not like if you're skeptical of the resurrection, you don't have like a bajillion case studies backing up your point, right? Like, yes, we, we realize resurrection's not common. Like, it doesn't happen all the time, you know? Like, you know, out of 10 people who die, you know, eight of them stay dead. Like, like you don't, like, no, it's, it's. Yeah, you got case studies backing you up on this. People die. They die. You never, you know, come home from the store and say, hey, honey, you'll never guess who I saw at Safeway this week. It was Jan, and she looked so good. You never would have thought she would have been dead just last Tuesday, you know. Like, that doesn't happen, right? Because, yeah, resurrection is not common, and that's why we're arguing something that's specifically connected to Jesus and only Jesus. It's not common. It doesn't often happen. And yet it's central. And so let me, let me tell you this. When we talk about Jesus' plan, Jesus knew his pathway to kingship. Jesus knew. This was not some kind of, uh, oh, the crucifixion. Didn't see that one coming. What do we do now? Oh, I got it. Let's raise him from the dead. Like, no. Jesus knew this was his pathway. I'm going to take you to two passages in Jesus' own words. Matthew 16, 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples Plainly, please circle that word, plainly, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law, that he would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. So plainly, he's outlying, this is my pathway to kingship, resurrection after crucifixion. Look at this next passage, Luke 9:22. Again, this is Jesus teaching. He says, the son of man, he's referring to himself, the son of man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. I'd love for you to circle the word will. He will, he will, he will. This is my pathway to kingship. Now, none of his disciples would have come up with this pathway. None of his disciples would have said, that is the most expedient line from where we are now to your kingship over all. He, nobody would have drawn that. But I want to tell you clearly, friends, there are so many times when God makes a way where there seems no way. When, when, when humans, when mere mortals look at a situation, we say, that is a dead end. That is a no-go. There's no way through this reality. And God says, I will make a way where there is no way. 
I will provide a pathway that nobody knows is there. On your own this week, you might want to look up Psalm 77. It talks about the plight of the Israelites. And at the end, it talks about how God leads them through the Red Sea. And it says, God, you led them through the sea. A pathway no one knew was there. That's what God does again and again and again. That Jesus, he knew his pathway was going to lead through crucifixion and resurrection. And, and so resurrection is so very central. And I wonder, do you remember a few years ago, there was, this, there was a, a whole lot of hullabaloo right around this time of the year. James Cameron was a director. He came up with this, uh, like a, a, a special, uh, aired on, you know, uh, Fox or I don't know, some cable news or something. But it was all about how they found the bones of Jesus. And then they had a couple of experts interviewed on that thing. And the whole idea, oh, we found the bones of Jesus. And, and what was so interesting is almost immediately, all the experts that they filmed, they, they, they distanced themselves from that. No, we didn't really say that. That's not what we really think. The whole thing turned out to be a total sham. We had Easter anyway that year. Do you remember? <laughs> but what I want you to see is... And the reason why no bones, he did raise from the the dead. Like, that's what we're going to talk about. But here's what I want you to see. It's so pivotal. Like, it's it's foundational. That is bedrock. For the Christ follower, yes, the resurrection matters. In fact, the whole thing hinges upon the resurrection. And this is true all the way from the very beginning. The, The disciples, the apostles, they first understood this is the central truth. Look what the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Paul says, yeah, if they actually did find the bones of Jesus... We should all abandon the faith. We'd be wasting our time. I'd, I'd become an in, a motivational speaker living in a van down by the river eating government cheese. That, 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 we're wasting our time if the resurrection isn't a reality. Because here's the deal. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, if it happened, that it impacts everything like gravity impacts everything. It's universally true. And if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then it it didn't happen, and it's meaningless. And so you you recognize that there is this reality, there's an onus of, oh, there's so much important here. And the truth is that God calls us to worship not only with our hearts, but he also calls us to worship with our minds. So you don't have to check your brain at the door to believe in the resurrection. Let Let me talk for just a little bit. I want to briefly go through an argument first put forth by a guy named Gary Habermas. He wrote The Verdict of History. And in it, what he does is he talks about there are some historical facts. These are historical realities that virtually every scholar agrees upon. doesn't matter what sort of branch you are. If you study history in the first century, you agree on these facts. And he says, now the clearest argument for why these facts are true is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's going to say, here's a logical way that you can think about this. So I'm going to give all 12 to you real quick. You can write them down on your notes if if you want to. But here's what he's saying. These are historical facts, by the way. So these are universally understood to be true. The first is that Jesus died by crucifixion. That he died by crucifixion. Friends, the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. 
They, they crucified 2,000 people in one afternoon in one episode. They, they were really good at crucifixion. And everybody they crucified died. Like, like, like it wasn't like most of the people they crucified died or a few didn't. Like, no, everybody, they, they were experts at this form of capital punishment. So Jesus was crucified by Roman soldiers. That's the first argument, again, everyone agrees on. You can't say everyone, but almost everyone. Everyone that matters, you know, whatever. <laughs> Number two, he was buried. So after his crucifixion, he was buried. Many different accounts talk of this. Now, the way that he was buried was in a Jewish ceremonial fashion. So specifically, there were ways in which his body was wrapped in linen. Spices were packed in between each layer of linen. Uh, to do this right, uh, most scholars anticipate that there would have been an additional 80 or so pounds that would have been added to the body as it was prepared for burial and then laid in the tomb. Number three. His death caused his disciples to despair and lose hope. So that's kind of universally understood that after the crucifixion, first the disciples scattered in fear. They were terrified. They were afraid. Then they gathered together, but they kept the shades drawn. They kept the doors locked. They were hiding. They were fearful. They weren't sure what was going to happen. This is a reality, and again, it's because Jesus was crucified. Number four, the tomb was discovered to be empty. So early Jew, the earliest Jewish arguments all presuppose that the tomb was empty. Even other accounts, right, non-biblical accounts, talk about this reality. Number five, the disciples had experiences of him. And what that argument means is this. Their central message was, we've seen him. That was their central message. The earliest message from the disciples, we have seen the risen Savior. Thomas up there saying, look, I, I touched his hands. I put my hand in his side. He is alive. Number six, the disciples who had had experiences of him were transformed. They went from being depressed, isolated, hiding, inconsequential, to suddenly being on fire, being inspirational, being in the public eye. Number seven, the message of the resurrection was the center of their preaching. Here's what I mean. The earliest messages that went out were not believe in Jesus, he'll solve your problems. Believe in Jesus, he'll help your finances. Believe in Jesus, he'll grow your hair back. The idea was believe in Jesus, he's risen from the grave. Believe in Jesus, he is who he said he was. Believe in Jesus, he is the risen savior. Central message. Number eight. The message of the resurrection was proclaimed in Jerusalem where he was killed and buried. So think about that. You're telling people, hey, Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen from the grave. And they're like, look, he's buried right here. Here are his bones, right? You can't, you can't get away with that if it's not true. You, right where the crucifixion and the burial were taking place, they're saying he is alive. He has risen from the grave. Number nine. The result of their preaching was that the church was born and it grew. And by the way, if you study movements across the globe, you need to realize that the movement of Christianity is a unique movement in terms of its breadth and its scope and, and how quickly it happened. Right? It, it went all across 
the, the entire world in just a short, relatively short amount of time because it was fueled by this passion, the passion of the message of the resurrection. Number 10, Sunday became the primary day of worship. So you realize the Sabbath was the pillar and now all of a sudden everyone's worshiping on the first day. So it's no longer the day of rest. Now it's the day of resurrection that is being targeted for worship. Number 11, I think this is super compelling by the way, number 11, James, the brother of Jesus, began to follow Jesus. Now if you have a brother, you know how significant that is, right? Something happened and James experienced it and suddenly he went from, yeah, Jesus is a good guy, he's the perfect older brother, you know, to now I'm gonna follow him for the rest of my life. Something changed his mind. And then the last one, which many of you already know, Paul was an an antagonist of the church. In fact, what he wanted to do was kill all of the followers of Jesus. He wanted to stamp it out. And this chief antagonist of the church that followed Jesus became a follower of Jesus himself. Radically had his life transformed. Radically began to pursue the way of Christ and to preach the resurrection of Christ Here is the argument. What singular fact best accounts for all of these radical changes? And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that the resurrection is a reality. Therefore, these historical facts are true. And and again, maybe this isn't so compelling. Maybe all, not, not one of these, but all together might end up being compelling. But you have to ask yourself, what would have been the motivation of the disciples? What, what did they think they might have gained from preaching a resurrected Jesus? Again, if it weren't true. Did they get babes? Did they get cash? Did they get new convertible sports camels? Like what was, what was the, the win for the disciples? Because history tells us boiled in oil, crucified upside down, that they were exiled unto death, every one of them martyred. So, so you might say, well, that's not that compelling. I know a lot of people who will die for their beliefs. Yeah, but the disciples are unique. You see, they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe it. They didn't believe it. They knew it. They had certainty on this issue. They knew it was true. And so they preached it unto death. You see, a lot of people, even today, a lot of people are willing to die for something that they believe is true. Nobody's willing to die for something they know is false. Nobody. And and, and so you have to recognize the unique position that the disciples were in. And of course, almost immediately after the resurrection, there were several Jewish institutions that were modified or begun because of the impact of a risen Jesus. Just real quickly, it was the end of animal sacrifice. It was the law of Moses was now no longer required because Jesus fulfilled it perfectly as the perfect lamb of God. Worship had shifted from Saturday to Sunday, from the Sabbath to the resurrection, and then there was the emergence of practices of both communion and baptism, both of which celebrated the death of Jesus. Interesting to celebrate the death of Jesus if that was the end of the story. The resurrection was the reality. So the primary thing that I want to I kind of land this plane on is that what we started with, Jesus knew that the crucifixion and the resurrection was the pathway to what? The kingship. 
It was the pathway to him ascending the throne. It was the original plan, the plan of not only salvation, the plan of not only forgiveness, it was the plan of the redemption and the reconciliation of all things under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so, this is what we see in scripture in Matthew 28, after the resurrection. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority. Please circle that phrase. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority is now given to Jesus, who has ascended the throne. He is the king. Colossians 1.13 says it this way. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Jesus is the king. This is his kingdom. The kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Friends, something powerful and supernatural and eternal is going on through all of this. That God is at work and he's rescuing us and he's bringing us to Jesus, bringing us to freedom, bringing us forgiveness. And we are now citizens of his kingdom. All authority has been given to him. All power. That that he is the one who is stronger than all other things, all principalities, all powers, even Satan himself. Jesus is now the rightful king and he's sitting on his throne and all heaven and and earth recognize his authority. Look what Jesus himself says about this in Luke 11. Jesus says, but if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man like Satan is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. That's so interesting to me. I want you to circle the phrase even stronger. Jesus is saying this. Look, Satan, yeah, he's strong. And yeah, he's armed his palace and, and he's, he's put up his gates and, and he's got, you know, all the battlements in place. He says, and he's going to stay like that. The kingdom of darkness, it's going to be just fine. It's going to thrive, he says, until someone even stronger shows up. He says, I'm that one. I, I am that king. And I'm going to kick open those gates and I'm going to go into his kingdom and I'm going to plunder his kingdom. And I'm going to steal the souls that he's been stealing from my father since day one. And I'm going to make sure that freedom rings. I'm going to make sure that those in chains are now set free. I'm going to make sure that this new kingdom, it just blows this old kingdom of darkness out of the water. Friends, Jesus is the king who is even stronger. Jesus is the king to whom all authority has been given on heaven and on earth. Jesus is the king who has purchased freedom from our sins. Jesus is the king who has risen again from the grave. And this is why the rocks will cry out. This is why we cannot be silent. This is why we join in with all of the universe in singing unhindered praise to the one, the only one who fulfills this role. Jesus isn't just king. He's not just Caesar. He's not just Kaiser. He's not just president. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. And only Jesus fills this kind of role. And so, friends, as as we kind of land this plane, I want you to see that my hope, our prayer as a team has been on this Sunday, that our hearts would be prepared to celebrate what next Sunday means. That we would be ushered into this reality that the resurrection has profound implications for every single part of our lives. 
And I pray that even this week, I hope this message just motivates, that it rings in your ears, that you carry it with you this week as you prepare your heart to celebrate his resurrection next Sunday. And the second thing that we hope about this message is that it stirs your heart to worship him. That it stirs your heart to recognize that he is the one to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. He's the one who sits high and lifted up and, and the train of his robe and the whole earth filled with his glory. That he is the one who is that perfect spotless lamb of God and we are now set free. And so we want to come together, humble our hearts and make much of him. And so why don't you do this? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and, and we just declare Jesus that we are so thankful that while mere mortals have an idea that you come in and reign for a season, for a political cycle, that, that your idea, that, that humans' ideas rather, are that maybe you could make things better for a little while, that you could make things kind of better in our life circumstance. Jesus, your plan is so infinitely better than ours that you knew the pathway to your kingship was through crucifixion and through resurrection, and now you are high and lifted up. And we want to join in with all of the universe. We want to join in with all of creation. We want to join in with the whole world singing praise to you, Jesus Christ, the one who is stronger, the one who is Messiah, the one who is the anointed of God. We want to praise you for how you have loved us. We want to praise you for how you forgive us. We want to praise you for how you are power for our lives today. We want to praise you that we get to praise you forever and ever. So meet us now in this moment, Lord. Allow us to lift your name high. We declare that you are stronger. In Jesus' name, amen.